0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus Good afternoon and also joining us today it's been a while, but uh, we're so thrilled to have Ann Sherman back from Beijing and helps us with our Facebook page at facebook.com slash china Africa project and good uh, chilly evening to you in Beijing.
1: Good evening. Thanks for
0: having me. And we're also thrilled to have on the show for the first time, Olivia Rosenman, who joins us from Hong Kong. And she is a master's candidate at the University of Hong Kong, my alma mater. And so a good evening to you, Olivia.
2: Hi, it's great
0: to be here. Wonderful. Well, as always, we have three topics on the show, and uh, today we're going to start with Chinese health aid and development in Africa, particularly in Mali. There's a piece that Olivia wrote in Asia Times that we're going to discuss, but there's also been some news this past week uh, in terms of Tanzania, where the Chinese are planning on sending more medical staff there. So we'll talk about the bigger issue of Chinese aid in uh, in Africa, medical aid in Africa. Then we're going to go to... Uh, Really what I'm considering is the second major slap against China in two weeks, uh, or actually in about three weeks, Uh, this time from David Shambaugh. And if you're not familiar with who David Shambaugh is, he's really one of the great uh, sinologists in the United States. I mean, there's not a guy who's got more credibility in the U.S. in terms of studying China for as long as he has. And he came out with a very strongly worded uh, opinion piece in The New York Times That criticized the Chinese. This comes on the heels of Sanusi Lamido's uh, FT commentary. Lamido, of course, is the central bank governor of Nigeria. So we'll talk about the bad press that China is getting in Africa and also what it's doing about it. And that will lead us into our third topic, which is the run up to the BRICS and um, which is the brazil russia india china south africa summit that's going to happen in durban south africa on the 26th and 27th um it's not really that exciting other than the fact that a lot of senior chinese officials who normally are rather mum in front of the press are giving some rather extended interviews and press conferences and so we're starting to hear a little bit on that so let's uh we'll get started with that but one very quick plug that i'd like to make um Our own Tendai Musakwa of the China Africa Project, he's a PhD candidate at uh, Fudan University, has done uh, some excellent translations of online Chinese reaction to the death of Chinue Achebe. Uh, and he is, uh, of course, the Nigerian author who passed away this past week. And there was some uh, some reaction on Weibo in China, and he's trans gone ahead and translated those. So Achebe's death really got a lot of reaction worldwide. But I think people would be surprised to see that he had a following in China. And so you can check that out at ChinaAfricaProject.com, or you can go to our Facebook page, at facebook.com slash China Africa project. So um, take a look at that. So let's get started first with healthcare in, uh, in, uh, in health aid in Africa. And Kobus, let's kind of start, let's set the, the, the groundwork here. Um, by the end of last year, China had recorded nearly 19,000 uh, specialists who have been working in 48 African countries, and now there are 1,000 doctors working in, in Africa all year round. Those are some statistics by Dr. Wang Liji. Who's the deputy director of uh, general deputy director general of international cooperation at China's National Health and Family Planning Commission? This is an underreported story in in many senses, and that we don't really think of the Chinese as big healthcare players in Africa. But at the same time, it, it's been controversial because of the fake malaria pills and the kind of shoddy reaction that China's had to that, denying that they are exporting uh, counterfeit malaria pills there. So, kind of help us set the stage before we get to Olivia's report. Reporting on Mali in specific about Chinese healthcare in Africa.
3: Yeah, this is a very interesting issue. Um, This year, actually, is the 50th anniversary of of the first Chinese team being sent to Africa. The first team was sent to Algeria um, to to help with uh, um, the you know kind of injuries and so on resulting from the Algerian War in 1963. And now obviously it's fifty years later um you know uh there's an you know an estimated a few million uh kind of um you know Africans have been treated by uh by these doctors some say about nineteen thousand doctors have have worked in africa um and as uh Lu Jingha, one of our you know kind of uh collaborators um as i've noted on the facebook page um the the is frequently used as a kind of a training um, field you know kind of so some of some of the most promising uh, Chinese doctors end up you know kind of having stints in Africa um, and the interesting thing about what they do there is they don't only treat people there also is a good a lot of investment into training people, um, so it's a little bit different from how Western aid works. Like a lot of a lot of uh, Chinese medical work in Africa involves training and knowledge transfer. Um, so you know, kind of, so it's a bit of a for me, it's, it's it feels a little bit unfair that they're not actually getting praised more for this. Because it costs a lot of money and actually helping a lot
0: of people. Well, let's uh, focus now a little bit on specifically on Mali. And Mali is where Olivia uh, focused in her recent report on in the Asia Times online newspaper that was on February 21st. Chinese doctors pull bullets in Mali. And so you, you, what was the interest for you specifically about what Chinese medical teams in Mali were doing?
2: Oh, well, it was actually sort of something I came across by chance. I was, it was, uh, when sort of the situation in Mali was really deteriorating at the end of January and I sort of was just doing some online research to see what was happening specifically in relation to Chinese in Mali. And I came across this medical team, um, some news reports. There's been quite a bit of, News reporting on it in in Chinese language media, uh, so I just you know I, I came across it by chance. But the more I, I researched about them, and and um, you know this team had been going there since 1968, I think it was. So they were sort of one of the first teams, um, you know, that were set up in Africa. And I just thought it was very interesting because I think, as you said, you're right that. China doesn't get much uh, sort of positive press about what they're doing in Africa and certainly don't hear anything about about the medical aid that they're actually administering there.
0: And particularly in Mali right now, from some of the medical teams that you talk to, because of the fighting that's going on, uh, they're getting combat training for the first time. Obviously, uh, in China, you don't really see that many gunshot wounds, unlike here in the U.S., but you, in China... Um, you know, these doctors are getting exposed to a certain form of combat training that they would never get if they were in medical training in, in, in China.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, so I was I was able to connect with a few of these doctors through Weibo, um, and a lot of them are writing about their experiences living and working in Mali. And, you know, they've, they've, some of them are posting up some pretty uh, intense pictures of, of x-rays with, with bullets in, in chests and um, you know, the sort of the bullets after they've been removed and one one photo sticks in my mind particularly and it's this sort of three centimetre long bullet that this doctor a picture of this three centimetre long bullet this doctor's posted and he says, I've never really dealt he's got a, written a little caption saying, Oh, I've never dealt with bullet bullet wounds before, but the, but these are becoming more and more common in my daily work here. So he was sort of very humbly um talking about a a pretty intense and different experience from what he would have at home, absolutely.
0: You know, Anne, it strikes me that this might be a politically very sensitive issue in China. You know, healthcare is one of the third rails of Chinese domestic politics, in part because so many people are unsatisfied with the quality of healthcare that they're getting. And that, you know, if you you go to a Chinese hospital, it's not uncommon that you have to pay bribes to get access to doctors. You have to... Um, y- y- you just have to endure an enormous amount of frustration. The Chinese healthcare system leaves a lot to be desired, and so when we hear, you know, domestically that China is sending some of its best doctors to Africa, this kind of taps into the a lot of a, a lot of frustration that Chinese have that they're treating foreigners better than the treatment that they're getting at at home. Um, you know, this came up uh, last year. When the Chinese were donating uh, buses, I think, to Romania, and there was one school bus crash after another, and the Chinese don't have, a lot of Chinese towns don't have proper school buses for themselves. And so this played out on Weibo quite a bit. So what would be your reaction to Olivia's reporting that, you know, there's some very high quality doctors in Mali, while domestically in China, a lot of healthcare needs go unmet?
1: I think this is a definitely a huge issue uh, in China. Most of it surrounds the hukou system and the um, sort of second tier uh, quality of health care education that um, migrant families and rural families get. Um, I think that most Chinese see uh, sort of China's engagement abroad, especially uh, this kind of story. Chinese doctors being sent to Africa as totally separate um, than sort of domestic. Issues like healthcare. Um, I think actually one question that, or the main question that this story brought um, to my mind was sort of, uh, do you think Olivia that uh, that this kind of conflict and these stories will make it harder for Chinese to find doctors willing to go to Africa um, and serve in these positions? I think um, you know we see Central Central African Republic, and um, I think the Sahel will remain very unstable? And do you think that, uh, you know, Chinese will continue to be willing to to do this kind of work abroad? Sorry, you're, you're cutting
2: out a little bit there. I'll just make the, sure I heard the question. Right. Did you say? Um, the,
0: the question is, do, do the pictures of the gunshot uh, wounds that are going up on Weibo, is that going to scare and intimidate maybe other Chinese doctors from going to 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 places like, uh, you know, Mali or the Sahel, which will continue to be unstable in the future. I mean, this could be the worst kind of advertising to encourage other doctors to come.
2: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, certainly a lot of the Chinese language media that I was reading that was reporting what these doctors were doing was all sort of, it was very positive. I I personally don't think... um, (laughs) No, I don't, I don't think it would have that sort of effect. I did, I mean, I did speak also to one doctor who, uh, was, had been recently in the Central African Republic actually, which, um, sort of, that uh, isn't a big story in the um, English language media at the moment, but it's also it's also a very precarious situation there. And the the Chinese medical team that was situated in the CAR was recently brought home. I think at the beginning of January they were brought home. Um, but I I still think sort of the very the impression from the media reporting that it was sort of this very positive, these people doing a very noble job. It didn't really. Uh, emphasize sort of the danger or you know the, the threats to their lives more, just how how much help they were giving to these people who really needed it, and also how appreciated they were by the locals. So, so no, I don't really think that it will have that effect personally.
0: Okay, well, Cobus, uh, let me let's kind of turn our attention a little bit more to the philosophy behind Chinese medical assistance in Africa. Uh, Dr. Li Anshan, uh, who is really. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kobus, but Lian Shan is really the, the big grand Puba of China-Africa intellectuals in, in, in China. He is, there's really... Yeah, he's one of the biggest ones. Yeah, yeah, there's really no one bigger. And so, uh, in many ways. And so he wrote this piece that was published on the, the, the Médecins Sans Frontières, the Doctors Without Borders website, which is really much a, a defense of Chinese medical aid in Africa and how it differs from the West. And the key distinction that he makes is that the Chinese as a developing country, as a a fellow third world country, to use kind of a Cold War reference, uh, sees itself as a partner to other developing countries, whereas in the West – and in developed countries, when they provide aid, he sees that in very much colonial patriarchal terms. So by definition, China as an emerging economy with Africa as emerging economies, um, they are partners together. Tell us a little bit more about the Chinese philosophy of, of, of health aid as defined by Li Anshan.
3: Yes, I mean, there, I think I think you summed it up very well. Um, you know, kind of he, he keeps um, stressing that what, what the Chinese are, in, are interested in is is to to create knowledge in africa and to to uh, make africa more self sufficient in terms of healthcare via transferring transferring knowledge and transferring training um, and uh, you know he also and, and part of that training is to teach uh chinese traditional medicine including particularly acupuncture um, as a as a cheap way to uh to manage pain for example um and uh you know he 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 mentioned this one like quite crazy story that uh apparently Chinese medical teams who were to were teaching um acupuncture to to med- medical personnel in Tanzania had the students actually practice the acupuncture on the Chinese doctors own bodies um you know which was startling for me um but you know he also makes as you said he makes this kind of big distinction between chinese medical aid and western medical aid and also interestingly for a piece that's actually put on you know doctors without borders our own website he keeps making these little digs at doctors without borders oh, they're not little saying,
0: digs Cobus. there he really yeah. went into them and, and go ahead and read the quote because i know where you're going with this one
3: yeah, no, you just keep saying that, you know, that the Doctors Without Borders is based in an ex-colonial country. They mustn't interfere with local conditions. Um, they have to think very hard about what their relationship is in Africa. And, and so, so that was pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> let, let me read the quote here, and, I, and then we'll get Olivia and Anne's kind of feedback on it. Although MSF claims to be a humanitarian organization, and most of its deeds are related to that, it cannot change the fact that it is an organization initiated in a colonial master country, and that is headquartered and most administrators are based in the West. Ouch. Um, so, <laughs> Olivia, this question of uh, you know, he, he, you know, the the welcome response that that maybe Chinese aid might be getting in Africa because it's not from uh, a Western country. Do you think that matters in places like Mali, or is it just the fact that anybody who's got medical uh, who could provide medical assistance will be welcomed?
2: Uh, you know, I think I think that probably they're still at the stage where any sort of medical assistance would be would be welcome. But I do think it is interesting to to see and understand that the you know that even you know China I think um, the medical aid is one part of their, of their uh, dealing with Africa. You know, that certainly have the business and infrastructure and, and minerals is probably. Uh, a bigger part, but that they still approach this medical aid with the idea of a partnership rather than a donor recipient sort of, um, like I think the discourse was is very obvious even uh, in the speech by the Vice Prime Minister Jai Jun, who was talking about sort of about the partnership. And I think, yeah, the discourse is. Even in when it comes to sort of medical aid, that they're still talking about partnerships, about working together and mutual benefit. Whereas I do think in the West, it's very much a discourse of this sort of donor-recipient helping to eradicate AIDS and malaria in in, uh, in Africa. It's it's very much about sort of this you know selfless um, it's charity involvement. But yeah, it's it's charity, and and I think you know, and even um. They're looking at um something you with know, these these hospitals that they're they're setting up more and more in in Africa and looking to develop partnerships for ph- pharmaceuticals so it's sort of still you, you know to have contracts with chinese pharmaceutical companies which which i think is um uh, you know, it's sort of it's actually quite entrepreneurial, and I think that that sort of the medical aid is an approach like that in the West.
0: Yeah, but you know what? Well, you know, I'm going to go to Anne now for this last point on the pharmaceuticals. And and you know, Anne, yesterday I was in the Hong Kong airport, and there was an announcement that rang over the loudspeakers that said it is now you can now be fined up to five hundred thousand Hong Kong dollars if you uh, take pack more than two cans of milk powder from Hong Kong. Right and and that's done in part because milk powder in China has been so corrupted by uh you know we had the Nyo scandal a couple of years ago and it continues to have problems with uh with quality control and so mainlanders were coming into hong kong piling up milk powder emptying out the supermarkets and taking it out so all the way to the point now where you can get a loudspeaker announcement at the hong kong international airport you know, and I wonder if the Chinese have any perception about how bad their reputation is in Africa when it comes to you know, the quality of their pharmaceuticals, in part because of one report after another. And, Kobus, you and I talked about this extensively earlier this year uh, when it comes to the fake malaria medicines that are coming in. Now, the Chinese will deny that un- they're coming through official channels, but it almost doesn't really matter if it's coming through an official channel or an unofficial channel. And you in Beijing are sitting in the same problem where quality control of products is a huge problem. You know, do you think that the Chinese have any awareness overseas that they're, that that they face this challenge in terms of people not trusting the quality of their products, particularly when it comes to healthcare?
1: Um, I think the awareness is definitely growing. And I think that this is something that we're going to talk about in the next topic um, with China's image and um, sort of the realization that this is um, extremely important. Um, I mean, I think that as Chinese here, um, sort of have uproar about, um, sort of the, the quality of their products. And I mean, Eric, you talk about this warning, but they, there's new stories here in China about people, um, being arrested because they're willing to sac- to kind of take that risk just to get, uh, safe milk. And, you know, there's so many scandals these days with pigs floating in the river in Shanghai. Um, these issues are, are becoming, Extremely, extremely contentious in China. And I think, um, more and more they realize that these are affecting, uh, their economic interests abroad. Um, and I think that this is something that the Chinese government will make a priority in addressing, I hope. Um, and actually one question I wanted to ask you all is, um, this, this sort of issue, this medical assistance in Africa, to me, coming from maybe a Washington perspective or maybe just the perspective of someone interested in, in China, U.S. relations, um, seems like an area where maybe there could be some China U.S. cooperation in Africa. Um, do you all see that as a possibility as something that, um, that well, China and the U.S. could work together um, on strategies in but, places like Montreal?
0: The only operation that I know of that, you know, in a place like Mali, where we, you know, as Americans do not have ground troops uh, or any physical troops on, you know, to continue, you know, we're providing logistical support. Uh, up to the tune of up to a billion dollars now uh, in the military operations. But I wonder if we have the infrastructure to send over medical teams to Africa on a regular sustained basis. And as far as I know that Peace Corps does not have a medical, and I might be wrong on this. So we have a lot of people discussing on our Facebook page about Peace Corps. So um, if you have any insights on that, you can post on our Facebook page.
1: I know I actually, I've been to Mali and I've met U.S. troops there as well as Peace Corps uh, and, uh, for volunteers in Mali doing medical assistance, so but I, I know I, that they. But be- my
0: question is: Do you think that they've been evacuated now in the light of the conflict?
1: Oh um, yes, they have actually.
0: Okay, so so that was I guess the, the the point that Olivia was making was that the Chinese are there in combat, pulling them out. But I guess on a, on a long-term, sustained basis, this could be an area of cooperation between Peace Corps and and the Chinese, um, if there was a dialogue going on. in Cobus, one of the key key issues here is the fact that. The, the U.S. and the Chinese don't really have too much in the way of dialogue when it comes to these development issues, do they?
3: Not as far as I know. I mean, both have have healthcare provision in Africa. Um, obviously, uh, the U.S. and USAID, I think, does some work on that. And then there's, uh, you know, kind of individual targeted uh, strategies like PEPFAR that uh, target oh, uh, HIV and AIDS. Yeah. Um, and I think they potentially could work very well together because it's, it's this kind of non-political kind of, you know, forum where they both are pulling in the same direction, where they're not really in competition. And, you know, kind of that that might very well um, play very positively in on both sides. Um, I think maybe one issue, one difficulty seen from the outside would be to get the two um uh, bureaucracies to work together because as far as I understand the Chinese and the USAID bureaucracies are very different and they're both huge. Um, you know, kind of and, and and very specific. So I think that might be one big issue.
0: And not to mention language would be another issue. Obviously if you're working in uh, you know, between Chinese and Americans, you have the language issue there, and then you've got the local language challenge. So, so language might yeah. be another issue. Uh, but um, I,
3: I think, and I think in a, in a different way, I think they're very complementary because I think the U.S. tends to, uh, focus a lot on, on, uh, child care issues and a lot on mother and child, um, health issues. And the Chinese work a lot, for example, on malaria. So, you know, the potentially the two could work very well together and actually, actually, you know, cooperate and, and cover different areas very effectively.
0: Okay, well, let's move on now to our second topic, uh, falling out of love with China. Now, this, again, is for the second time in a month is uh, nothing short of just a slap in the face of China in the media by people who have enormous credibility. So the first one came from the central bank governor of Nigeria, Sanusi Lamido, and he talked about how China is de-industrializing Africa and is behaving like a colonial country. Uh, he did not call it directly a colonial country, but he said that the, it really smells, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's a duck. And in this case, he's saying that China is behaving like a colonial country, and African states must change here we have in the uh, March eighteenth edition of the New York Times David Shambaugh and David Shambaugh is the former editor of the china quarterly he 's at the brookings Institute and he 's also a Professor at George Washington University. As I mentioned at the top of the show, when it comes to the credibility of sinologists, you really don't get much better or more respected than David Shambaugh. So this was must be another blow to China's global perception. Uh, and let me – before I get the panel's uh, reaction, let me just read one quote here. Now that China is becoming a world power, Shambaugh writes, it is beginning to recognize the importance of its global image and the need to enhance its, quote, soft power. It is tracking public opinion polls worldwide and investing huge amounts into expanding its global cultural footprint, quote, external propaganda work and public diplomacy. Unfortunately for China, that is not enough. Kobus, wow, Um, here we go again. So another round of of hand-wringing in Beijing about its global image. This must be very frustrating for the Chinese, particularly for their efforts in Africa, because they have invested a huge amount of money in media, but yet, Every week on this show, we talk about how dysfunctional Chinese public relations are and how their perceptions are wildly off the mark in many respects. So Olivia writes about how in Mali, you know, these doctors are doing great work, but they don't really get much coverage for it in the Western press. And here we have David Shambaugh really slapping the Chinese again. So what was your reaction to this?
3: Yeah, um, it's a little bit of a mixed reaction in a way. You know, kind of. I think he he points at real problems. Um and at the same time um you know i felt that to in a certain kind of way um some of it struck me as almost not really unfair but like maybe a little bit unfair in a way kind of um you know because for example, uh, kind of he, he, you know, kind of he says that you know instead of, of engaging in all of this public PR and instead of just uh, you know kind of like dismissing public criticism, the Chinese should actually engage with these difficulties. So fine, I agree, you know, but then he then he gives a bunch of of, uh, of recommendations, which include stop stopping kind of the, the uh, cyber hacking, which obviously. Um, But then things like open their markets, reduce their trade surplus, you know, kind of restrict subsidies for foreign investment. And it's like, yeah, sure, but, you know, it's a little bit like, like telling America that you know, your image will really improve if you close Guantanamo Bay and also kind of lessen your relationship with Israel, which no. is, is much very long. Well, but at the same time, it's so ingrained in the very way, in the very system that's running in the U.S. that, that it's not going to happen within a few months. You know, it's it's major seismic, changes, you know, kind of in, in the very system of the uh, you know, the way the very way the system the country works. But those are and fair but those are fair points though bit, and
0: fair criticisms yeah. to say that America should shut Guantanamo and its relationship with Israel hurts its global image in the Arab world. I mean
3: Yeah, no I com- I completely agree. But the thing is doing that, you know, saying that and doing that are two different things. And doing it takes a l- much longer time than, than he it seems to to uh, you know sort of to make clear.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, and I read a book uh, by James McGregor, who is the author of One Billion Customers, and he's really former head of Dow Jones in China. And he says that, you know, China now is becoming, in, in his latest book, you know, increasingly, you know, a global bully. It is, uh, you know, particularly when it comes to international trade, uh, particularly when it comes to market access for foreign companies in China, uh, it has not cracked down as sufficiently on intellectual property rights. It is still, it's a very aggressive trader. And you know what? Frankly, they're saying the chickens are coming home to roost. Um, and, and, and so, so McGregor takes the, a very similar line that Shambaugh says in, by, by really saying that the blame for this lays at the, at the, you know, the doorstep of Chinese policymakers that you know, if you behave like an asshole and you're aggressive, well, this is what's going to happen. What's your thought on that, and particularly the view domestically in China?
1: I think that there are a couple of points that are important. One is that um, Shambaugh says that you can't respond to these using unconvincing public relations campaigns. I think that that's one huge problem that China has, that uh, instead of sort of addressing these, these criticisms that are sometimes uh, based on, or well-founded, uh it kind of just continues to use these terms like win-win cooperation mutual benefit um you know the the BRICS interview that we might speak about later he talks about um, you know equal relations with every country um i don't think that that this kind of uh you know this kind of media helps in uh combating this image issue i think people take take this kind of stuff they don't have they don't believe her there's no credibility in these statements another another thing I think uh, that Shamba mentions that I think is is possibly a, a good example is uh, he says that there needs to be more transparency in things such as the military budget that China just uh, its defense budget that it just came out with um, in things like foreign aid to Africa or uh, investment and loans in Africa I think that those are some things that China uh, that Beijing could improve upon that would um, sort of help its image um, and aren't you know, as sort of extreme as, um, you know, opening its markets.
0: Yeah, some very good points. Uh, let me read another quote. Uh, Even in Africa, where relations remain positive on the hold, right, Shamba, uh, China's image has deteriorated over the past three years as a result of the flood of Chinese entrepreneurs, its rapacious extraction of oil and other raw materials, aid projects that seem to benefit Chinese construction companies as much as recipient countries, and support for unsavory governments. A similar downturn is apparent in Latin America for the same reasons. Now, here, you know, Kobus and I, you know, Olivia, we, we kind of take a little bit harder edge on the West. You know, he's accusing here um, China of kind of, you know, consuming vast amounts of Africa's natural resources, supporting unsavory governments. Uh, you, you know, frankly um, – <laughs> Is the West any different? You know, we tracked uh, – we discussed a couple weeks ago how the United States is basically on track with consuming almost the same amount of, of oil from Africa as as, uh, as China does. Uh, certainly the West supports unsavory governments all throughout Africa. So is there not a little bit of a double standard here in the Western media and maybe even in Shemba's comments here that he's holding to China to a higher standard than, than he would hold a Western government?
2: Yeah, you know, I think I, I would actually agree with that. And I think, um something that's really interesting is that sort of, uh, there's often, there, there's all this coverage of, of China exploiting and, and exploiting Africa for their natural, for, for their resources. Uh, but I think it's often sort of slightly exaggerated. Actually, when you look at, at Chinese overseas, um direct investment, it's only, uh, Af- the, the investment in Africa only makes up about 10% of Chinese foreign investment. So, uh, I think the top three countries that China invests in overseas, are number one is Australia, uh, and then I think it's, it's Canada's number three, and uh, the US is number two, Canada's number three. And Africa, the combined, and I think, so the, the top, uh, number amount for Australia, it's $55.9 billion annually, whereas the whole of Africa only fifteen point three billion dollars. So I think it really is often very exaggerated that the idea that China's going into Africa and taking you know, taking all their resources and running all the mines. Um but something I also just wanted to add something to what Anne was saying about uh China's sort of soft power and their their, the way they manage their ina- image and I'd I have to agree that it. it seems like they don't really have much of a plan and a policy about how they are going to manage their image overseas and they do get a lot of negative coverage and I think they sort of, they they definitely respond every time but you never see them going out and actively pursuing a positive campaign, sort of proactively They they simply respond to the criticism, which I think is a problem. But I think it's something they're doing differently in Africa by going in with, with, you know, you've spoken about previously on this podcast about all the media that they're setting up in Africa and really proactively trying to establish a good image there. But they're not doing that in the West, I think.
0: But I wonder if government-run media is the best way to respond to this. I mean, you look at how... You know, and Olivia, you know, you're you're studying journalism at Hong Kong University, and you know, you, you the United States doesn't have really effective government-run media either. I mean, who listens to the Voice of America? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of a joke. Um, but so, so, but the United States has the benefit of CNN. It has the benefit of ABC News, and it has its its cultural soft power comes from the private sector media. The private sector in China doesn't really have a foreign media that's compelling. You know, at all in English language. So I wonder if, you know, what's the best way for any government to respond to to improving their image through through media? In your opinion?
2: Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think it, it, it's a difficult. Um, yeah, it's definitely difficult. Uh, it's difficult for government to do that. I mean, I think there's something else that the the Chinese are doing is sort of the establishment of. Uh, Confucius Institutes all around the world. And from what I understand, especially in Africa, um, they're really growing in numbers in Africa too. But even those haven't really been very successful. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism. I know that there's a, a few universities that have sort of eventually thrown out the Confucius Institutes because they weren't really happy with the way they were operating. So, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think you're right. I think it's very difficult for for governments um yeah, no. You're, no one does really listen to these sort of government campaigns, so I'm not really sure, actually, how they could do it better. I
0: mean, BBC and, and, and even ABC in Australia; these are kind of exceptions, more or less. I mean, they're they're, but at the same time, you know, in terms of conveying a foreign policy, it, it, it is very difficult. Cobus, you know, I wonder what the cumulative effect of of all of this negative coverage that the Chinese have been receiving from very prominent, you know, people again, like. Sanusi Lamido and also David Shambaugh. Is this, in your opinion, the beginning of something much more significant of a massive opposition to not only the Chinese role in, in Africa, but we're starting to see a, a global opposition start to emerge to the Chinese. You know, I, I live in Southeast Asia where opposition to the Chinese is just, you know, huge. Um, and, and there's this fear that Chinese money is reshaping the region in ways that they can't control. Or do you feel that, you know, this is just representative of what happens when there's a change in power? Certainly when the Americans came to power, uh, they were probably criticized by the British press at the turn of the century in the the 20th century. Um, Is this just the natural movement of the tectonic plates of geopolitics?
3: Yeah, I would would probably go with the second one. Um, I think you know kind of i think in in a recent recent new york times op-ed um a professor named Zheng um Wang um who's at uh, the Woodrow Wilson International Center um he made the point that that china chinese leaders are actually much less confident than they seem um and that they are actually much uh, much more insecure and nervous about foreign policy and that they actually have a much weaker foreign policy than they seem so he made the point that china tends to its bark tends to be worse than its bite, and it, its particular example is the obviously the, the island dispute between with Japan. Um You know, kind of the. I think the China is still working out how to modulate its its image internationally, and um, with that, uh, you know, kind of. I actually want to connect with what you what you mentioned. I think state-owned media is a really bad way to do it, Um, and this is actually this is the work I'm the research I'm doing at the moment. Um, You know, some of my work is 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 comparing Chinese state-owned media with Japanese media in Africa, Um, and obviously Japanese media follows a lot. Over very similar to Hollywood kind of uh, conglomerates, private sector-based, uh, you know, kind of media that is just pumping the world full of crazy images, you know, kind of anime and crazy fashion and all kinds of, you know, really not a unified message at all. Um And in certain ways, that kind of the, the kind of pop culture-based communication that, that that Japan pumps out counts for much more than than Japan's own very staid you know, kind of social you know, kind of um kind of state uh broadcaster called NHK who actually does very good work, very similar to the BBC, but it's not seen very much overseas. It you know, is
0: boring as all get out though.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean they're 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 pretty they're good but they're boring and they're conservative, very similar to CCTV, actually. Um you know, kinda of, but I, I think that in in the end entertainment is is kind of really undervalued in China at the moment, and it's because, among other reasons, because the state is so conservative, um, and the state is nervous about about internal discourse within China. Um, you know, kind of so uh, it's we'll have to see how it develops in the future. But I think in America, um, you know, you, you talked about ABC and you talked about um, you know kind of even very good work like NPR. I think is it's 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 much much kind of less influential than Kanye West than
0: Jay Z. Yeah. Than, you know, kind of than Hollywood. Well, what you're really talking about, the model you're talking about, is the Korean model, which is K Wave. That yeah, Korean yeah, private yeah. media has created such a juggernaut, particularly in Asia, and even in Latin exactly. America to some extent, and Psy in the United States, uh, you know, with Gangnam Style, how that has really done more for Korea's public image worldwide than any any official policy ever could. Um, you know, to your point though about the perception gap in Africa between the Chinese, it reminds me of uh, Susan Shirk who is a professor at the University of California San Diego and she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Fragile Superpower. And you know, and she said the Americans say what the, the American reaction to that title is what the Chinese are fragile and the Chinese reaction to that title is what we're a superpower. So, mm-hmm. you know that the outside world looking into China often ascribes it the superpower status and label But inside China, as Anne pointed out, there's a real lack of confidence on the, you know, I mean, they're dealing with so many domestic challenges. They're dealing with so many changes that their own society is going through that the idea that they are somehow, you know, being, having this colonial plan for not only Africa, but Latin America, South Asia, even parts of Australia, um, is, is kind of far fetched when you see how chaotic and dysfunctional the Chinese government is at its core. Um, go ahead, Olivia.
1: Oh, it's Anne and oh, I think it was Anne. Go ahead, Anne. On what you're saying, Eric. Um, I think that China faces sort of in, in trying to figure out its international image and trying to adapt its foreign policy going forward. Um, I do kind of see this as sort of a, a shifting point and I think it, it, it's attempting to make all these balances. Um, in terms of what you were saying about its, its neighborhood policy in the Asia Pacific region, I think it's trying to balance you know, uh, it's it's growing in economic might, and it wants to uh, strong assert its, its uh, national. Res- it wants to get more respect, um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't want to threaten its you know neighborhood policy, and doesn't want to create mounting suspicion in the region. The same thing in Africa. I think it's trying to strike a balance. It wants to be seen as a responsible power in Africa as it you know rises in affluence and influence on the international stage. at the same time, it wants to be a respectful partner among African countries. So I think that it's trying to strike all these uh, very difficult balances in the different uh, sort of areas of its foreign policy. And I think that Africa is one of those places that will We'll see it play out how how effectively it can it can manage that balance. Well,
0: let's hope they do a better job in Africa than they've done in Southeast Asia, where I mean it's been a colossal failure in Southeast Asia because of the the island disputes, not only with the Japanese over the Diaoyu Senkaku, but also the the Spratleys and the Paracels, which have angered the Vietnamese. You know, there's problems in Cambodia, there's problems in Myanmar now with the Chinese who are being accused of being rapacious. You know, Olivia, I look to Australia in some respects as as an interesting case study because. You know, five or six years ago, the Chinese were were not warmly greeted at all in Australia. There was this kind of sense that, you know, with the the, the troubles with Rio Tinto, and there was a sense that the Chinese were taking over and this nationalism kind of kicked in and this nativist political response kicked in. But now there's this sense that the Chinese are the source of all things good because the Australian, you know, natural resource economy is booming, particularly out west and um and the chinese seem to have a much better public image in, in australia so is there a lesson that can be learned for africa from what's going on in australia
2: well i don't know i don't know if i would actually agree that to today public image mountain of China in Australia. Okay. You know, there's a the Lowy Institute in Australia. It's a, it's a think tank in Australia and they conduct an annual poll um, about public perceptions. Um, and the, the one for last year showed that actually sort of suspicion what was it up to? It was up to 56% um, agreed with the fact that uh, the statement Australian government is allowing too much investment from China. I think that actually the the fear and suspicions of of Chinese investment in Australia is actually rising. Um, And in a way, it is sort of hypocritical because it's true. Australia does have China to thank for its um, growing, its it's. It's, I mean, it's a resource of boom that's really happening right now, and you know the majority of that is going to China, uh, but at the same time they, people are really uh, inherently suspicious and and I think I don't think they really do have a positive uh, image in Australia at the moment.
0: Well, in some ways then the parallel is similar to Africa, where we've seen a number of the countries that China has been the biggest investor in Africa are also some of the fastest growing economies in the world today. And yet, there's very high levels of suspicion. So one has to wonder, and I imagine this is the Chinese response that says, "Well, if we take our business elsewhere and we go somewhere else, what will happen to your economy?" You know, it's like you know, I can see why the Chinese would be a little pissed off with you know the sense of that these countries are not grateful for the foreign investment that China is making. What's you know, in Australia is there that sense? Do you think?
2: Sorry, I didn't, uh, you cut out there. Could you say that
0: again? My thought is the fact that there's a sense of that there's, uh, you know, people are ungrateful. There is a perception that says that the Chinese have invested huge amounts in Australia and a lot of African countries. But at the same time, these are also some of the, the economies that have the highest levels of suspicion towards the Chinese. And so if you're sitting in Beijing, you kind of have an attitude that says, well, you know, F you, if you don't like us, we'll take our money and put it somewhere else then.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose that would be a reasonable reaction, but I think that they just have such a, a hunger and a need for for all these resources all over the world that I don't know if they can really, if that's in their interest, to sort of try and teach people a lesson by by taking their money elsewhere, okay. because ultimately it hurts them too, I guess.
0: Well, Cobus, let me go to you for the final point on this one, and this has been my kind of theory all along, and I'd, I'd like you to validate it, but I don't expect you to, okay? Is that I think that the Chinese are playing by a different set of rules than in the West. And in the West, we are very sensitive to public perception and public relations, and it's something we place enormous value on. The Chinese are sensitive to it but are not particularly good at it. But at the end of the day, I don't think they care. And to Olivia's point, they have an agenda, which is to feed their domestic economy with natural resources. So if the Zambians or if the Nigerians don't like it, that's okay. We can live with it. As long as the resources keep coming, we're okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, it might. You know, I might spin it slightly different way, saying that they also might not have that much uh, at the moment, kind of mechanisms to really gauge what people are thinking. Um, You know, I tend to, I tend to frequently think that just because a bunch of journalists or you know, a, a central banker in the case of, of Nigeria is writing a, criti- a critical um, op It doesn't necessarily translate into that's how Nigerians are feeling. And I think that's maybe, you know, kind of the, the kind of doubt that the Chinese bring as well. I think they are very sensitive, however, to, to domestic opinion, you know, kind of, um, and and for that reason, I agree with you. I think it's, it's politically very important for them to keep resources flowing and to keep the, particularly the economy growing. Um, you know, kind of And one of our guests is joining us next month, um, recently wrote a paper, um, um, uh, you, um, Sorry, Hu Yushan recently wrote a paper, um, which he made exactly that point, kind of looking at, at social media in China um, and how responsive the Chinese leadership actually is to Chinese social media. So I think they they you know kind of they're forced to 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 value domestic opinion more than foreign opinion. Okay, well, let's... Mm. Uh, Could
2: I just yeah. um, add something there? Go ahead. Cause I, I mean, I, I really agree with that. And certainly a lot of the media that was coming out um, after the wrap-up of the, NBC, the the conference last week, seemed to be saying that they really thought that you know, that foreign policy wasn't going to be the most important and pressing issue for the new, uh, leadership, that it was really going to be, um, that they were going to be focusing on internally, uh, you know, what's happening internally and they're looking at restructuring these big, you know, the railway ministry and the food safety ministry and looking at these things that are very much domestic issues and that, 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 that is going to be the focus. So I think, I think you're sort of right that really there, it's, it's, they're not so interested in what the rest of the world thinks because they've got bigger concerns at home, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, I have a friend of mine, he's a China consultant, and he says that uh, every day that Xi Jinping wakes up, he's got 50 things that he has to deal with to make China not fall apart. Uh, and literally at the seams. And, you know, for those who haven't lived in China, there is a certain level of chaos. And Anne, you can speak to this from, you know, living there. I mean, just your, you know, the air is Im- is unbreathable in, in most of China's major cities. The water is undrinkable. You know, the food supply quality is questionable at best. Uh, and so when you look at where foreign policy oftentimes fits on that list, it's v- frequently very, very low. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't always have that perception. But let's talk finally about, you know, You know China's foreign policy. And one of the areas that people have been watching is, will Africa under the new Xi Jinping administration stay as high as it was under the Hu Jintao administration? So we're getting the first indications that Xi Jinping is placing a very, very high value on Africa by virtue of the fact that he's attending the BRICS summit in Durban, South Africa on the 26th and 27th, and that he's also been giving, uh, you know, not only him, but a number of senior officials have been giving, you know, in the run-up to the BRICS summit, uh, uh, some high-level interviews. So we've heard not only from Xi Jinping himself, we've also heard from Liu uh, Lu Ye, who's the head of the Africa uh, Division of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and, of course, the vice foreign minister, Jai Jun, uh, this past week, among others. So it's been a very interesting week, Cobus, for getting some insights. Have we learned anything from all of these high-profile interviews, or has it been much of the same pro forma, win-win type of propaganda that we've seen out of the Chinese government for the past few years?
3: Most of it has been. Most of it has been, you know, following the script. Um and she I think seems to be very charming from what I can gauge. Um, you know, kinda of, so I think he, he puts a kind of a personal kind of vibe to it. But the a long interview that, that I read um which was with a group of BRICS journalists um, pretty much follow the same, the, same, the same kind of script. What was more surprising was a speech by um, Jai Jun, who's the vice foreign minister, um, who actually acknowledged that there are certain kind of problems. There are, you know, kind of a little bit of growing pains um, with, with Chinese-Africa relations, and that there are things that Chinese companies can do better and should do better in Africa.
0: And in particular, what he did, and we, we posted this uh, both on our Twitter feeds and on Facebook last week, and didn't get much response, which I was surprised about, was he really encouraged Chinese businesses to be ethical and you use that word ethical because this has been an ongoing issue both with labor rights in China – in Africa as well as quality control and there's been a growing frustration across the continent with Chinese businesses and, and entrepreneurs. Uh, but what I think a lot of people may not understand is that he – beyond rhetoric, he doesn't have any authority over these businesses. He can't actually do anything to sanction them. Uh, So whether it's the ivory trade, which we talked about last week, uh, a little bit, but or it's something far more, you know, you know, things like, you know, fake malaria pills that are coming out of uh, non-governmental organizations. He can't really do much about it. And did any of this catch uh, public attention in China? Or is this something that's made for exterior consumption, external consumption only?
1: Um, I think the the visit. Um, to the BRICS summit and to Africa has caught uh, attention here, although I think that the main, um, I guess, discussion around this is sort of the choice to go to Russia first, and um, I guess possibly not to uh, go to the U.S. Um, But I think that it does uh, reaffirm sort of the priority that Africa takes in the agenda, but I don't see it um, sort of Changing, I guess, uh, significantly during the next 10 years, uh, in comparison with the last 10 years. Mm
0: -hmm. Because of those domestic concerns that we've talked about, which are so paramount.
1: Can I add something too, I think.
0: Go ahead, Olivia.
2: Well, I was just going to say, it was also interesting at the beginning of the month, um, there was a report, uh, what was this, USA Today or something, about a, um, a U.S. Senator, Chris Coons, who was basically warning the U.S. that, it, that they really should um, uh, be sort of focusing on Africa more, because he says, said that in it'll be ten years that uh, the U.S. would be shut out of Africa by international competitors, and particularly China. So, I think Chinese investment in Africa overtook the U.S. in, in 2009, according to this article, um, and that he was really warning the U.S. to get get back into Africa because he was worried that they'd be shut out.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Coons quite a bit, and he's been pretty much the only one in Washington sounding the alarm that uh, that the United States needs to up its game, um, you, you know, in order to kind of keep keep pace with the Chinese in Africa. Cobus, I don't know if there's much more to add to BRICS other than what Dr. Sven Grimm last week told us, who, who gave us a lot of insights on, on the Chinese policy. But, you know, is there, you know, we're kind of digging here through... What, or to really perform our interviews from Jaijin and also from uh, from Xi Jinping himself, but there isn't much more to add to it. Do you think?
3: There, there was two things that was interesting for me. One, in, in you know, kind of one of the points that the Jaijin was making was that there's a gap between Africa's expectations and what China can actually. What are China's capabilities? So what China can actually deliver? Um, you know, kind of, and I think it's, it's probably easy to look from the African perspective and to see this Asian giant, you know, kind of who could pretty much do anything pretty much by waving a magic wand, you know, kind of, and that there might not be enough uh, understanding in Africa about limits in personnel, limits in skills, limits in uh, awareness and knowledge and so on, you know, within Chinese companies to deal with African issues. That's an interesting point for me. The other thing that I actually wanted to ask you about is so Xinjiang, Xi Jinping is going to Russia and then um, you know kind of he has a brief African tour that includes obviously South Africa for the BRICS summit and Tanzania which makes sense to me but then he's also going to Congo Brazzaville. Why do you think he's going there? That seems like a, a,
0: a quite of a, sm- a smaller player in Africa. Why isn't
3: he for example going to Nigeria?
0: Uh, very simple. I think Congo Brazzaville's uh, it, it's uh, in the top five of uh, oil suppliers for China. Okay. Pure okay. and simple, okay. it's one of the largest oil suppliers, and that, and also, it's got a a much more friendly government. Uh, it's stable, uh, relative in terms of stability relative to Sino-African relations. Uh, it's not one of the troublemakers for for the Chinese, but it's a big oil, up-and-coming oil supplier. So I think that's uh, you know, pure and simple, what it is. Okay. Um, so you know, at the end of the day, I think geopolitics is going to drive the Chinese agenda, and I think whether or not their public relations keeps up, we'll see if that actually matters. Um, but we have, uh, we have officially kind of maxed out, I think, the BRICS Summit for the next two weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll try and stay away from it next week. Um, uh, but, uh, but I want to thank you all for joining us today. And then, uh, let's start with Olivia. If people want to follow what you're doing and the work you're doing, some of your freelance work, also some of your blogging that you're doing, uh, from the University of Hong Kong, where can people find you? Uh,
2: yeah, people, I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at Olive Sophie Rose. So O-L-I-V-E. S-O-P-H-I-E-R-O-S-E
0: That's got to be one of the longest Twitter names I've ever heard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so hard to find one that isn't taken these
0: days. Fair enough. And uh, and then, uh, Anne, if people want to follow what you're doing up in Beijing, what's the best way for them to keep on keep, keep top of you? That didn't come um, out right.
1: on Twitter as well, annesher
0: 7 Excellent. annesher 7 And also, Anne, you can find us participating from time to time on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Cobus has been particularly active this past few weeks on our Facebook page. Uh, where can people follow you if they want to stay on top of what you're doing?
3: Yeah, I'm on the Facebook page frequently, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadonesque, that's
0: S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. We we, we talk about our Facebook page quite a bit because we're really just so excited about it. We've now just crossed 48,000 fans. The vast majority are between the ages of 18 and 34, mostly 18 to 24-year-olds from Africa, and the debate and discussion that's going on is really just absolutely fantastic, so we're just thrilled to see that so many people are following it, particularly students. Uh, we're glad that Olivia joined us from the University of Hong Kong, a master's candidate. We're going to have Ryan. Uh, I'm forgetting his last name. He's another master's candidate coming on. So this is really a great opportunity for students to kind of share some of the work they're doing, both in an academic context, but as Olivia's doing some reporting, same thing. And then again, also, you can reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at E.O. Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. And we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. You can find us over at iTunes where we hope that you, you know, rate us and leave a little comment. That's always a nice thing for us. Uh, And then also you can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So until next week, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks for listening.